0: The Codex Gigas was the devil's book written by a mysterious writer with an eerie drawing halfway through. On today's episode, we are also going to be discussing another mysterious manuscript known as the Voynich Manuscript. Written centuries ago, no one, and I mean, no one has ever learned what this book says. Is there any hope of understanding it at all? Or will this book forever be unknown and unsolved? Hello and welcome to Prism of the Past, a semi-weekly series about historical events, people and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati and today we're going to be talking about one of the most mysterious books in the world, the Voynich Manuscript. After my episode about the Codex Gigas, this became one of my most requested topics. And now that I've finally gotten around to writing about it, I'm excited to share what I found. Let's dive right in. The Voynich Manuscript is known as the 15th century codex. After a stylistic analysis, it is believed to have been made in Italy, though it's appeared and disappeared throughout the world and throughout history. We'll talk about its strange timeline in a moment, but first let's address what this book even is, considering that it is such a mystery as anything else. It's an unknown script written by an unknown author, and it derives its name from the Polish-American antiquarian bookseller who acquired it in the early 1900s, Wilfred M. Voynich. It's also been described as a magical or scientific text as nearly every page has botanical figurative and scientific drawings of a provincial but lively character drawn in ink in vibrant green, brown, yellow, blue, and red washed. According to Yale University, based on the subject matter of the drawings, the contents of the manuscript fall into six sections. One, botanicals containing drawings of 113 unidentified plant species, two, astronomical and astrological drawings, including astral charts with radiating circles, suns and moons, zodiac symbols, such as fish, Pisces, a bull, Taurus, and an archer, Sagittarius, nude females emerging from pipes or chimneys and courtly figures. Three, a biological section containing a myriad of drawings of miniature female nudes, most with swelled abdomens, immersed or waiting in fluids and oddly interacting with interconnecting tubes and capsules. Four, an elaborate array of nine cosmological medallions, many drawn across several folded folios and depicting possible geographical forms. Five, pharmaceutical drawings of over 100 different species of medicinal herbs and roots portrayed with jars or vessels in red, blue, or green. And six, continuous pages of text, possibly recipes, with star-like flowers marking each entry in the margins. You can find a more detailed description through the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library, as well as descriptions of the book's missing pages. This source claims that the origin and date of the manuscript are still heavily debated. The book could have been written in the 15th or 16th century, though another one of my sources claims that radiocarbon dating has assigned it to the early 15th century. The sections of text have thought to be recipes, yet the text is, well, indecipherable. One of my sources say, This tome makes the Da Vinci Code look downright lackluster. Rows of text scrawled on visibly aged parchment flowing around intricately drawn illustrations depicting plants, astronomical charts, and human figures bathing in perhaps the fountain of youth. At first glance, the Voynich manuscript appears to be not unlike any other antique works of writing or drawing, but a second closer look reveals that nothing here is what it seems. Alien characters, some resembling Latin letters, others unlike anything used in any known language are arranged into what appear to be words and sentences, except they don't resemble anything written or read by human beings. Scholars, linguists, and cryptologists have all tried and failed to decode the unknown script. For quite some time, that's literally all we know about this mysterious book. Yet over the years, we've come to understand more about it and started to piece together the puzzle that is this manuscript. So now let's build this book's timeline and try to see where it's traveled over the years. There are a few prime suspects for who wrote the book. Two 13th century authors, Albertus Magnus and Roger Bacon stood out to Wilfred Voynich as the first potential authors back in the 1920s. He settled on Roger Bacon as the prime suspect after time and became firmly convinced of this. This theory seemed to make sense. After all, Roger Bacon was a natural philosopher. So perhaps this would have been up his alley. Of course, back then, Voynich declared Bacon to have been the author in 1921, and not everyone believed him. As Lynn Thorndike, a writer for The Scientific American, stated, there were three points that proved Voynich wrong. For one, there was no evidence that Bacon wrote in cipher. Thorndike had closely studied Bacon's work, so he was well-versed in Bacon's manuscripts. Secondly, there was no real reason to assert that Bacon was the only possible author. It was a theory, but Thorndike was essentially just calling him out for not having proof. And third was that anyone tempted to believe the manuscript was science or pseudoscience would test the idea against the evidence of tens of thousands of manuscripts treating such matters. The theories about this book's author have been even wilder though. My favorite is that it is the illustrated diary of a teenage space alien who left it behind on Earth. Ray Clements, curator at the Beinecke Library, told BBC News in 2014. Voynichologists have argued that the text roots lie in tongues ranging from Old Cornish and Old Turkish to the Aztec language of Nahuatl. Others have thrown their weight behind the theory that John Dee, who was astrologer to Queen Elizabeth I and the alchemist Edward Kelly conceived the text as an elaborate Tudor hoax. Radiocarbon dating disproved these theories though. The book was written around 1404 to 1438, a hundred years or so before the Elizabethan bigwigs were in their pomp and over a century after Bacon died. While the identity of the author has remained a mystery, we do know at least some of the manuscripts owners. Apparently, Johann Marcus Marcy, a Bohemian doctor, told his friend Athanasius Kircher, a German Jesuit scholar, that Raphael Minischofsky, a Bohemian lawyer that held judicial posts under King Rudolf, said that Rudolf II, the king of Bohemia, bought the book for 600 ducats. And I'm sorry, that was quite a bit of names that are hard to remember and hard to pronounce. So to break it down, Rudolf loved the books and had the funds to pay extravagantly for them. Raphael was a young provincial and only beginning to have royal well favor. And he speculated that Rudolph owned this book and paid a ton of money for it. Years later, he told Marcy this story and Marcy thought it was worth retelling years later to his friend Kircher. Both Marcy and Kircher would eventually come into possession of this very book, but not before it was passed around a bit. This letter and language used by Marcy has been dissected quite a bit over the years as his wording can be interpreted multiple different ways. It's said that this conversation took place between 1627 and 1637 though, based on the language used. The main takeaway here is that it's widely accepted that at some point in time, Rudolf II had this book. It's also apparently very likely that Rudolf acquired this book from the English astrologer, John Dee, as Dee may have owned this manuscript along with a number of other Roger Bacon manuscripts. And it seems this is where the theory is that either Bacon or Dee wrote the manuscript, though as we said, radiocarbon dating disproves this. According to the Beinecke Library, in addition, D stated that he had 632 cats in October 1586, and his son noted that D, while in Bohemia, owned a book containing nothing but hieroglyphics, which book his father bestowed much time upon. To put it plainly, D’s son said, "My dad is obsessed with this book and I don’t understand." As for the next owner of the book, it said that Emperor Rudolf gave the manuscript to Jacobus Horzitski di Teponetz, Rudolf’s personal doctor. There is evidence of the exchange within the book itself as his name is written on folio 1R, the very first page of the book. It's so faded that his name is actually only visible through UV light. Along with Yakovic's name, there's a small cipher table on that page, proving that people were trying to decode this book centuries ago and it still stumped us all. It's possible that an alchemist named George made this cipher table as well. And we know he's become one of the earliest confirmed owners of the manuscript because of the massive paper trail he left behind while discussing it. George Barish seemed determined to solve the riddle of this book. He pleaded with Kirchner to try his hand at the book, believing Kirchner had unmatched intellect and referred to the book as a sphinx that was impossible to solve. And for some time, people believed that Kirchner was silent on the topic and didn't respond to those requests. However, Czech historian Josef Smolka's discovery in the early 2000s changed that. So Karcher didn't seem to want to help Barish because of his distaste in alchemy and implied that he had better things to do. Marcy and Karcher also spoke of the book and about 37 letters between the two of them have been preserved, dating from 1640 to 1665. Marcy tried to persuade Karcher to take a look, vouching for Barish's good intentions. The reason why he had to do this was because Kircher had been pranked before and made to look like a fool for solving codes in the past. His competitor, Andreas Mueller, had sent him a fake manuscript. And according to an article in the Journal of Voynich Studies, once Kircher solved the mysterious text, Mueller went with the story public and made Kircher ridiculous. Another similar sample on another occasion actually failed to fool Kircher, allegedly again written in Chinese characters on silk paper. He discovered in the mirror that the letters were nothing but the set of Roman numerals written backwards. That sounds silly, but the information is rather vague. Apparently even this was originated by Mueller who was an expert on Chinese symbols and probably wanted to show how little Kircher knew about it. Again, it seems to be just like a practical joke intended not so much to fool Kircher, but to entertain Mueller himself. The third story is that some young rascals buried stones that they carved in various shapes in the place where a new house was built. Karcher acknowledged the authenticity of stones and explained what the different pictures should mean, which was of course, sheer nonsense. These stories seem outlandish and even the author of this article says as much. They may have been exaggerated over the years or there could have been some truth to them. Even if he was only tricked privately with a fake manuscript by Mueller, it would explain his hesitancy to decode yet another mysterious book by someone he didn't really trust. Yet joke or not, Beresh would never live to see the manuscript decoded, and he passed away and donated the book to Marcy. Eventually though, it landed in Kircher's hands. And from that point on though, any record of the manuscript ceased. Maybe Kircher did try to solve it or maybe his distrust of alchemy kept him from ever cracking it open and taking a look. We can't know for certain. Many believe that it was stored with the rest of Kircher's correspondence in the library of Collegio Romano collecting dust before it would resurface once again years later. And before we continue on to discuss the rediscovery of the Voynich manuscript, let's take a quick moment to thank today's sponsor. You've got back-to-back meetings, errands to run, and chores to take care of. What's the secret to cleaning your to-do list out? Well, maybe it's a little help from DoorDash. You can get dinner, household essentials, and everything you need on your grocery list delivered. Get what you want to eat right now and right to your door. And along with all the restaurants you love, DoorDash now even offers grocery delivery services and other essential items all delivered with DoorDash. You can get drinks, snacks, and other household items delivered in under an hour. So whether you need a smoothie in the middle of the day, ice cream in the middle of the night, or maybe you forgot that one important ingredient while you were doing shopping, DoorDash has your back. And with over 300 partners, you can support your favorite neighborhood go-tos or choose from one of the national chains available. So for a limited time, our listeners can get 25% off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code prism. That's 25% off up to a $10 value and $0 delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code PRISM. Don't forget, that's code PRISM. 25% off your first order with DoorDash. Subject to change and terms apply. In 1773, the Society of Jesus, the College Romano, was suppressed in Rome. Numerous books were taken from the famous library of the main college, where the Voynich manuscript was believed to be stored. Decades later, in 1814, the society was restored, and between 1824 and 1870, the manuscripts were gradually retrieved and a large number of them were rebound with new covers. It's almost certain the Voynich manuscript was one of these. By 1870, they were suppressed again as the city of Rome was captured by Vittorio Emanuele II's troops. In 1873, the main part of the library was confiscated, though three collections escaped confiscation. All three influenced manuscripts that used to belong to Kirscher. In 1903, the Jesuits decided to sell the above-mentioned collection of classical and humanist books and manuscripts that originated from the library of the Collegium Romanum in Tuta Vatican. The catalog of the material for sale written in 1903 is still preserved in the archives of the Vatican Library. The sale, which included the Voynich manuscript, was only completed in 1912. By this time, the book dealer, Wilfred Voynich, had entered the stage. Voynich had a connection with Joseph Strickland, an ex-alumnus of the Noble Collegio Mondragon, who was associated with the college and working in Florence. Though I'm not sure how they met, and my sources say that information is still unknown, Voynich bought the manuscript that would become the Voynich manuscript from him in 1912. It's evident that he became obsessed with the book, attempting to find someone to solve it for about seven years before he came across University of Pennsylvania philosophy professor William Newbold. In 1921, the two of them delivered lectures on the manuscript, calling it the Roger Bacon Cipher Manuscript and claiming that it was discovered in a castle in Southern Europe. Voynich didn't get to spread his theories very long though, as Orford Voynich passed away in 1930, passing the manuscripts on to his wife, Ethel. And you may have actually heard of her as Ethel Voynich was a very successful author back in the day. Her book Gadfly gained cult status in the USSR and China selling millions of copies and two movie adaptations were made. Her novel, which takes place in 1840, sharply criticizes the Catholic church's active opposition to the movement for a united Italy. However, and depressingly, the book actually holds a lot of racist sentiments towards South Americans and black people. Racism affects the portrayal of women of color in this novel as well, though critics rarely draw attention to these aspects. Her book seemed to gain popularity because of its unashamed atheism, which was so unusual for its time, as opposed to advocating for genuine equality. Either way, Ethel was the one in charge of the Voynich manuscript after her husband passed away. When Ethel died later in 1960, it was left to Anne Nill, who had once managed Wilfred's New York book business. The two women had been close, so naturally Ethel entrusted it to her. About a year later, Ethel found a buyer, Hans Peter Krauss, a Viennese bookseller. Krauss purchased the Voynich manuscript for $24,500 and Anne Nil tragically passed away only three months later in September of that year, 1961. Throughout this time, the manuscript was primarily kept in a bank vault in New York. In 1976, a first microfilm copy of the manuscript was made on request of Steven Skinner. Printouts of this microfilm, known as Copyflow, could be ordered from the Beinecke Library, which was used by many people interested in the manuscript over the next few decades. The manuscript was digitized in color in 2004, and the result was made freely available on the Beinecke Library website. A second digitization was made in 2014. From the 10th of November, 2014, to the 26th of February, 2015, the manuscript was on public display for the first time since Voynich's lifetime. At the occasion of this event, it was announced that Yale would publish an affordable photo facsimile of the manuscript, while in parallel, the extensive facsimile edition of the manuscript would be produced by an expert company. I think it's fantastic that the book is so easily available these days, just as the Kodaskegas is online. This is especially significant because it allows other people to try and solve the mystery of the Voynich manuscript or to simply admire the illustrations. If that is something you'd like to do, I highly recommend heading over to the Yale University website. And again, that will be linked in my sources. Now that we know what the book is and its history, let's finally take a look at my favorite part, the theories. I'll get some of the most ludicrous out of the way, aliens. Because it contains a language that can't be found anywhere else on the planet and star charts that are unknown, it leads people to believe that aliens may have created the manuscript. The thing is, while this manuscript is incredibly baffling and you and I might find it odd that someone would write an entire indecipherable book, codes were incredibly common back then. In the 16th century, Italian cryptographer, Giovanni Battista Bellasso recognized the power of using multiple alphabets to encrypt messages. And according to my source, to use the cipher, you use a keyword previously agreed between the sender and recipient. We write this keyword out as many times as needed above our message as below. We have used R-O-M-V-L-V-S. To encipher each letter, we look at the alphabet and labeled with each letter of the keyword of Balasso's chart above, and then write down the letter that sits above or below that character. The encoded message was then Q-M-U-N-M-T-C-P-I-I-I-A-L-Q-S-D-A-Y-M. Note that different letters in the original message can be encrypted as the same cipher letter, a good way to confuse anyone intercepting the message. A 1379 collection of Vatican ciphers also proved how difficult these things could be to crack. Some special cipher shapes were code for nothing at all and had been added into the cipher text specifically to try and misdirect codebreakers. Remember Raphael Minshovsky, the lawyer and writer who held judicial positions under Rudolf II that I mentioned a little bit ago? Well, he widely claimed to have created a cryptograph that was undecipherable. One theory says that he created the Voynich manuscript to showcase his work and that he told it to the Holy Roman Emperor, and that's how Rudolf was in possession of it in the first place. Sources say it seems unlikely he would go through these lengths to showcase a cipher, and it's more likely he'd write a single page document rather than a 240 page book. Even so, I found this theory particularly interesting when you consider that Raphael does, at the very least, have connections within that time period. It seems more possible than aliens anyway. One scholar claims that an Italian Jew wrote the manuscript as one of the illustrations looks like a Jewish communal bath. Then in 2019, an academic made the explosive claim that he had succeeded where everyone failed and decoded the manuscript. I experienced a series of eureka moments whilst deciphering the code, said University of Bristol honorary research associate, Dr. Gerard Cheshire. He claimed, what it reveals is even more amazing than the myths and fantasies it has generated. For example, the manuscript was compiled by Dominican nuns as a source of reference for Maria of Castile, Queen of Aragon, who happens to have a great aunt of Catherine of Aragon. It is also no exaggeration to say this work represents one of the most important developments to date in romance linguistics. The manuscript is written in proto-romance, ancestral to today's romance languages, including Portuguese, Spanish, French, Italian, Romanian, Catalan, and Gallican. The language used was ubiquitous in the Mediterranean during the medieval period, but it was seldom written in official or important documents because Latin was the language of royalty, church, and government. As a result, Proto-Romance was lost from the record until now. Cheshire believes this isn't a cipher, but an extinct language. There is no dedicated punctuation marks, though some letters have variants to indicate punctuation or phonetic accents. All of the letters are in lowercase, but there's no double consonants, there's no diphthongs, triphthongs, quadrupthongs, or even quintephthongs, something that I've never heard of before, but would essentially mean five vowels in a row. Cheshire has said that the next step is to use the knowledge to translate the entire manuscript. If he really is correct and the entire manuscript can be decoded, then I'd be excited to hear what happens next. But for now, I'm not going to hold my breath. Some say it's a Semitic language, while a group of Turkish researchers claim it's old Turkic written in a poetic language that they've got about 30% of it decoded so far. Yet for as many people as there are that have been so determined to solve it, there are some that dismiss the manuscript entirely. Some have posited that the entire manuscript was a fraud and Voynich himself made it all up. After all, Voynich supposedly had sufficient materials to forge it and he had sold at least one known forgery called the Columbus Miniature. This doesn't mean the Voynich Manuscript is a forgery by default, but if he had forged something else, why not do it again? One source also claims that he was a trained chemist and that one of his friends, Sidney Riley, had taken out a book on mixing medieval inks from the Cambridge Library. Then again, this doesn't fall in line with the codocanonical and forensic evidence for the age of the manuscript, and it also discounts the multiple letters that were written about the book in the 1600s. Many experts have corroborated this. But for whatever it's worth, I really doubt this is a fake. After all, if it was, why would Voynich spend seven years trying to get someone to decode it? Why devote so much time and effort to the book rather than just, you know, sell it? Not only does the forensic evidence prove as much, but Voynich's own beliefs and actions lead me to believe that the Voynich manuscript is the real deal. Now, the last of these theories surrounding the manuscript is that the manuscript itself is pure gibberish. After all, if no one can decode it, then maybe it's because it wasn't meant to be decoded in the first place. Glossolalia occurred frequently in the 1840s and Joseph Smith, founder of the LDS Church, would instruct early Mormons to use it. Though many of my sources refer to it as being used in the mid to late 1800s, the concept of speaking in tongues is an ancient one. But would someone really spend this much time on gibberish? Is this entire book just someone's fever dream? I have absolutely no idea. And that I think is one of the most interesting parts. If you want to learn more about the Voynich manuscript, there's a very lengthy video on it from Histocrat here on YouTube. I found their video toward the end of my research and I really appreciate their historical take on the matter. Some of it discusses other pieces of context and things that I may not have covered in today's episode, but all the more, I find it very, very interesting. Today, I largely wanted to focus on just the book itself and discuss what makes it the most mysterious book in the world. But with that being said, that is where I'm going to end today's episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to hang out with me and learn about this new manuscript. And I hope you enjoyed it. So thank you so much. And I'll see you in the next one.